0: Okay, everybody, I have 12.30, so let's get started. Welcome, especially if this is your first time or if you're joining us by listening or watching. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Last week, we are still in the section of Deuteronomy called the Historical Prologue. This will go through chapter 4, verse 43. The historical prologue is when, when you make a covenant between nations or a suzerainty treaty, then there's a recounting of the events that led up to the making of this covenant. And that's what we're in right now. And then the whole book of Deuteronomy itself is the covenant document, because this is a covenant that's being ratified with the next generation. It's being renewed. It's not a new covenant's not being made, it's the covenant that was made already is being renewed for this generation. So it, that would happen in the ancient world. If a king made a treaty with a nation, then at the death of one of the nation's kings and the rise of a new king, then they would reconfirm it with that new king so that there would be continuity. The covenant would continue on with, between the two peoples or between the king and the nation that was his vassal. So that's what we have. This is a new generation of Israelites and all but three of them who came out of Egypt as adults, are now dead. The only remaining ones are Caleb, Joshua, and Moses. And Moses is not long for this world either, as we'll read today. <clears throat> so this is setting up. He's, he's, he's handing off the torch. And this chapter is, um, gives a hint of that. And then it'll play out in the book of Joshua when they actually go into the land. But last week there was a recounting of the, the battle... Or the victories that God had given Israel. those was a counting of the overwhelming odds that they had faced and that they had triumphed through basically just God's presence, and then being obedient and going into battle when God says. And we've seen before in Exodus, or excuse me, in numbers, how Israel tried to go into battle without God, and the results were disastrous. And that will be the case throughout Israel's history that when it comes to God's covenant protection, it's only when they are in covenant relationship obedience with Him that they can presume that protection. When they step out of covenant obedience, that protection can no longer be presumed. And that's what we'll see all throughout the unfolding of the history of Israel. When they step out of obedience, when they break the covenant stipulations, then they do not get to claim the covenant blessings. And that's what a bulk of Deuteronomy is going to actually tell Israel specifically. So Deuteronomy is basically looking to the future. It's looking to the past, which is the section we're in, and then it's going to shift into looking to the future and saying if you want to live in this land, Israel, that God's about to give you, you have to keep this covenant. No covenant obedience, no land. No covenant obedience, no relationship with God. No covenant obedience, no life. That's why it's so important and that's why century after century after century God will send the prophets to turn Israel back, to warn them, you're you're breaking the covenant. You're, You're heading to the point of no return. You're getting to the point where you will be, your iniquity, your sin will be as full as the Canaanites were at this point. The Canaanite sin will have reached its full measure, as we read back in Genesis 15, when God made the original covenant with Abraham. And so now, Israel is gonna be the means by which God judges those Canaanite peoples, the particular Canaanite peoples. Not everybody living in the land, but the particular peoples that God named in Genesis 15. So now, God's gonna tell Israel and the rest of Deuteronomy, hey, you're in the same boat as them, if you reach a point where your iniquity reaches its full measure, you too will be vomited out of the land. That's the language that God uses. The land will vomit you out just like it did the people that you're driving out. And so God does that. And Israel experiences that. Israel experiences what it's like to be the Canaanites about... mm, A thousand years after, give or take, this is said. And so Israel ends up being driven out of the land just like the Canaanites were because their iniquity had reached its full measure. In fact, when you read through Jeremiah, there are points where God tells Jeremiah, stop praying for them. Because your prayer and your words are not going to change them or not going to hold back my judgment because they have passed the point of no return. The only thing your words are now going to do is condemn them even further. So you read Jeremiah, and that's exactly what you read because God says, because you know what? I've divorced them. God literally tells Jeremiah, I am divorcing my people Israel, my bride that I married at Mount Sinai. It's a very—it's a—it's a shocking passage in the prophets, but it's what God says. He warns it through Hosea, and then he actually does it in Jeremiah. It's part of the reason that the book is such a that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, because he has to deliver this message to Israel. But this is long before that, when Moses is telling the people, "Hey, that's the route that I can see. Don't go down it, because there's another route that would lead to life, that would lead to blessing, that would lead to the nation streaming." to Israel to want to learn who is a god who is this God that 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 carries these people and treats these people this way and that they have such a relationship with. That's what he wants. But Moses can also see the other path if they go that way. And so Deuteronomy is a constant warning to the people in this covenant. So last week then we talked about the two defeats of the kings that lived in the Transjordan, that is on the east side of the Jordan River outside of Israel proper. And verse twelve, I believe we left off around there. Um, Verse twelve, it talks about the division of that land. This happens in Numbers thirty-two, of the land that we took over at the time. I gave the Reubenites and the Gadites territory north of Aror by the Arnon gorge, including the half the hill country of Gilead together with its towns. The rest of Gilead and also all of Bashan, kingdom of Og, I gave to the half tribe of Manasseh. And there's a parenthesis. The whole region of Argob and Bashan used to be known as a land of the Rephites. We've talked about the Rephites, the land of the boogeymen, the land of the scary people, the land of the mighty people, however you want to translate it. Yair, descendant of Manasseh, took the whole region of Argob as far as the border of the Gesherites and the Maakathites. It was named after him, so to this day Bashan is called Havoth Yair. End of parentheses. So that's giving a little, at the time of this, this is how these peoples have settled, how things have played out. And I gave Gilead to Machir, but to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave the territory extending from Gilead down to the Arnon Gorge, the middle of the gorge being the border, and out to the Jabbok River, which is the border of the Ammonites. Its western border was the Jordan and the Arabah from Kinnereth, which is the Sea of Galilee, to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. So he's delineating just the, the, what we call the Transjordan land, everything from like the Golan Heights up in the north down to um around the dead sea on the east side of the river so that would be where modern day jordan is uh he goes on to say verse 18 i commanded you at the time the lord your god has given you this land to take possession of it but all your able-bodied men armed for battle must cross over ahead of your brother israelites however your wives your children your livestock i know you have much livestock may stay in the towns i've given you until the lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. After that, each of you may go back to the possession I've given you. So there was, again, we saw in Numbers 32, there was a group that said, or a couple of the tribes that said, we've got a lot of livestock and this land that we're in, Bashan's territory, the land of the Ammonites, the land of the Rephites, this is really good livestock land. So can we just stay here? We'll give up our rights to the land in the promised land. Uh, just let us stay here. And there's some back and forth, and Moses almost doesn't let them do it, but then he, but then he realizes oh, they're not just trying to get out of taking the land. They're, they mean just we'll go fight, but let our livestock and our women and our children our elderly, let us stay here, but our fighting men will still, the men of that census, will still go in and, and fight for our brothers to get their land, then we'll return. And so that was the compromise that they made. And the text never really says whether that's a good or a bad thing. It just says God allows it, because you know there's a, it's again it's an agreement, it's a compromise. But we do know that for the rest of Israel's history, there will be tension between the tribes of the Transjordan and the tribes in Israel proper. There there will be tension there. When one has to go to battle, the other will be less likely to join them, and you'll see that unfold later. So um, it, it was it was a plan B. Basically, it wasn't God's original intention, but the people asked for it. And God, as he's done throughout Torah, he will accommodate people sometimes. He will let say, okay, this is what you want. It may not be the best, but okay, I'll give it to you. And sometimes he'll give it with a promise that, and if you continue to be faithful to me, even in this that I'm I'm conceding, I'll still bless you. Um, But people oftentimes don't do that. So we see that God's got nowhere in Scripture, Genesis should have told us above anything, that God's plan can't be derailed, even by humans choosing to go and do their will. God's plan will happen, whether we're participants in it, depend on our obedience. But passages like this, I think to me, are interesting because what they show is that God's plan isn't like a tightrope where you one step to this side or one step to that side and you've blown it. You know, and it's not like a uh, there's, it's not like a bullseye either, like this is His will. Anything out is just, you missed it. You missed the bullseye. God's plan is more like a river. And it's like there are definite banks in the river and there are rocks and rapids and God wants you to avoid the rocks and rapids as you go in the river. But you can navigate the river through those things. It'll just be harder sometimes. Sometimes you'll hit a rock and crash. Sometimes you'll bump along over it. But God's plan will continue. But you've got to stay in the river. There's, there's limits to it. And those limits would be the covenant stipulations. But within that, there's some freedom and some flexibility. And, and you, I think that's a better idea of what you see in the whole Bible in terms of how God's plans interact with our decisions than a, than a deterministic, you know, God pulling the puppet strings model. Uh, but that's for you to come up with your own theology as you read through Scripture like we're doing and study and, and spend time thinking about the ways God's done and what God's done and the ways He's revealed Himself to people. So, he goes on then, verse 21 says, this is kind of an irony, because the people, the, the tribes that he just mentioned, they were supposed to go into the land, but they didn't really want to. And so a compromise was made where they got to stay out, but just their fighting men got to go in the land and then would come out. There's a, there's a sad irony because what's about to happen now? <clears throat> At that time, I commanded Joshua, and note this phrase, it's all throughout this chapter, you have seen with your own eyes. That phrase, you have seen with your own eyes. See and eyes is an important note in this chapter. You've seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done To these two kings. That's the kings we saw last week. King Og uh, and the king of the Ammonites. Uh, The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you're going. Over there, east or uh, westward. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God Himself will fight for you. Verse 23, this is where it gets at. At that time I pleaded with the Lord, O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country in Lebanon. So this verb see is being used throughout this chapter and Moses is telling Joshua, you've seen what God's done. Now go and be bold in it. And then he turns to the Lord. Now, Lord, let me see But he means, he doesn't mean see, he means let me go into the land. And God's response, verse 26, but because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That's enough, the Lord said, and in the Hebrew it's a very sharp. It's almost like shut up, like it's a curt response. That's enough, the Lord said, do not speak to me any more about this matter. The verb implies that Moses had been doing this, repeatedly asking this because I think in Hebrew, do not continue to speak, do not continue to ask. The, the, the idea is that Moses had, this is not the first time he and God have had this conversation. There's been a lot of, hey God, I'm sorry, can I go? No. Okay, God, I'm really sorry this time. Can I go into, the, no. Like, God made a decision, and Moses has continued to to plead and to plead, which is fine. Jesus actually commends people to do that in his parable of the unjust judge and the widow, who day after day after day wears down the judge. And finally, the judge gives her what she wants just to get rid of her. And Jesus said, how much more then will your heavenly father want you to ask him in prayer? However, that's balanced with when God does declare something, and then there's a repeated ask, and God declares no, no, no. In other words, he's not ignoring justice. He's not extending. He's not hiding his face. He's made his face known, and his answer is no. So in Paul's life, Paul three times prayed that God would remove this thorn in his flesh, whatever that was. And three times God said, no, my strength is sufficient. And by the third time, it's like Paul gets it. And he realizes, okay, this is not going to change. So you've got to hold those things in tension and know when God may be saying no as a final no, or when God may be saying uh, no as in not right now. And in Moses' case, it was a definitive no. Not now and not ever, Moses. But with a little wink of an eye, God's verse 27, don't speak to me anymore about this matter, go up to the top of Pisgah and look, or see is the verb, Uh, west and north and south and east, see the land with your own eyes since you're not going to cross this Jordan. So God's, it's kind of mean (laughs) in one sense, but there is a little bit of a a humorous wordplay in it. God's saying, okay, Moses, I've told you no, you're not going to go. And you've asked me and asked me and asked me, no, you're not going to go. But I'll let you see it. You asked me to see it, I'll let you see it. Go up on this mountain, take a good look. You can see everything. So there's, there's now in this relationship we have, we have to remember that Moses is the closest human being to God on the planet. And up until this time, other than maybe Enoch, the closest human being to God that has lived. Like, maybe Adam too, before the fall. Like Adam and Eve, like that with God. But then the fall, separation. Enoch was a bright spot in the history of Genesis. And then since then, no one has had this, no one has had the relationship other than maybe Abraham with God where they can actually have a back-and-forth. Like a legitimate conversation with friends, and even a disagreement with friends, where God does enter into. And remember, all throughout, if you're just joining us, you have missed four years worth of God's dealing with His people. And three of those years have been His dealing with Moses that we've looked at in this study. And how God has said time and time again, Moses is my friend. I talk to him mouth-to-mouth is the Hebrew phrase. English translates it face to face. But God's saying Moses Moses is the only one who can approach the glory cloud of God on top of Mount Sinai. He is the one who has seen God. So, if God says Moses you're not going, we know that that's not an arbitrary thing. We know that God has granted requests of people before. So if God is telling Moses you're not going to go, this is your heart's desire, you're not going to get it. Then the text leaves us with this sense of like, so, okay, what do we do with that? And we can either look for reasons to distrust God and show how God is being mean and out of character and God's in the wrong and Moses, you know, all he did was hit a rock. God should have just let him go. Or we can do what Moses himself tells Israel to do and remain faithful to God's covenant and his promise and trust, like Abraham trusted, that the judge of all the earth will do what's right And we can know that if God kept Moses out, he had a reason for it. There was something specific that it was to teach either Moses, Moses and the people, or Moses the people and everyone else who would read this forever afterwards. And and this is a big contentious passage. People don't know, they don't understand it. It, it. Why? Why does God not let Moses go in the land? It's all he wanted. Moses had been faithful, he'd been faithful, he'd been faithful. 80 years he'd been faithful. And that was after 40 years of growing up when God had protected him. At this point, we're left in the Bible with sometimes God saying no and not giving us a reason why. And he'll do it to Moses. And if he can do it to Moses, how much more then should we understand if he does it with us? Who do not have that face-to-face, on-the-top-of-the-fire, literal experience with God that Moses had. So that's one of these passages where the Bible just has to say, hey, this is what happened and let your theology do what it wants with it, but this is what it says. So it's really sad and we detect that note of sadness in Moses. But then, in the same verse, he tells God tells him, but commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. You'll see it. Joshua the one that will bring them into it. Verse 29, so he stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. This is where they end the, uh, or at least brings them up to where they are now. And there's an important transition that God, that Moses is going to do and it will do it later too um, when, at the end of Deuteronomy, but the commissioning of Joshua. He's telling the people, and this is... This is uh, incredibly important point in terms of being a leader is knowing God may very well have brought you so far and the thing you labored for so long and then he may very well say and now the next person coming after you is going to be the one that actually takes them into it. Pastors run into this a lot. My dad's a pastor and he um has a reputation in his conference which is the south georgia conference united methodism he had a reputation all my life he's had a reputation of being a pastor who can go into a troubled church where they've had a lot of turnover they've had a lot of problems whatever attendance is down and he can bring an element of stability and and i mean he's not doing but you know god threw him his giftings and is able to after a few years that church starts to turn and it starts to become healthier you know he just that's his that's he's done that at Pretty much every church I remember growing up except for the first one that we were at. And that was kind of the thing. Now, the beauty of that is that is seen by people and they recognize, you know, oh, let's send Jim Smith to this church and that will, if it's it's in struggling with leadership, here's a leader that can come in and actually lead and turn the church around when it's headed for disaster. The problem is, once the church starts to get turned and going well then he would get moved to a new church to do that same thing. So it was this laboring, but then someone else coming in and taking it that next step. And that's something that leaders have had to be able to do and to be comfortable doing. You know, to reconcile the fact that, yeah, that's part of the gig. That's part of what comes along with it, is, is preparing the way for the next person who's going to take it even further. It happened in the campus ministry I went to. The pastor who was over the campus ministry that I was at, at the University of Georgia, the Wesley Foundation, he had been there for years and years. He had laid the groundwork. There prayer, there was fasting every year, three weeks of fasting, constant prayer, all this revival stuff, raising up, you know, class after class after class of these Christian leaders, setting the ground, setting, laying the groundwork, and then he was called to step down, or you know, he through a number of circumstances, but he stepped away. But before he left, he said, the best, what we've been laboring for here for my whole career is going to be seen after I'm gone. So you guys, those of us that were students and leaders, get ready and the next person that comes in, they're gonna be the one that takes you there. And they did. The person that came after my senior year, transitioned into my leadership, the pastor who came in is still there to this day and they're the largest campus ministry in the country. Like by not even, it's not even close. Thousands of students each week. So the point is God will call you if you're a leader, God may very well call you to labor and labor and labor for something that this side of eternity you're not going to see the benefit of. And that's the call of a shepherd. That's the call of, you know, Moses. There's a cool little... Glimmer of hope, though, because in the New Testament, in the land, Jesus took two of his disciples, and they went up on a mountain. Who appeared to them? Elijah and Moses. Moses did get to see the land from within. He did get to see it from within, through the ministry of Jesus. And that was just a foretaste of the glory that will be eternal. See, Moses, all the way back to Abraham, God promised Abraham, you will get this land, but it's not going to be for 400 years. Genesis 15. Well, that means that Abraham had to know, okay, my descendants will get the land. But Abraham himself still had faith that somehow he too would receive. And the only way that could happen is if even death itself can't stop God's plans from happening which means that God was a God not of the dead, but of the living, which is what Jesus told the Pharisees when they talked about and doubted the resurrection. He said, you don't know the scriptures. It says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Meaning that in a roundabout way, Jesus was saying that if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not bodily resurrected and get to dwell in this land, then God hasn't kept his promise. That, that, that God's a liar but because of the hope of the resurrection the promises are firm and that's why I said this side of eternity not this side of heaven this side of eternity because God will come and restore the earth he will raise the dead we've seen it it's it's not as explicit in the old testament as it gets to be in the new testament you know first corinthians 15 flat out just lays it out for you in terms of the resurrection but even in the old testament there's the hint even in the old testament there's the expectation that where can i go to flee from you lord if i make my grit bed in the depths of the earth you are there with me even the grave will not separate god's people from him and so when they talk about dying they go to rest with their fathers they go to rest with their ancestors until what until god raises the dead until he brings them back into the land that he promised to give abraham isaac and jacob So when jacob tells his dying commands don't bury me here bury me in the land when he's in egypt they do that and it's not just symbolic it's very much a longing and a claiming of even death is not going to prevent me from experiencing what god's given me and so we see it in moses's life later much 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 later when the one who is the culmination of this covenant and who brings this covenant to its close and ushers in the New Covenant that Moses himself will talk about later in Deuteronomy, that's when we see the glimpse of Moses in the land, getting to experience it. But on this side of the veil, on this side of Moses' side, he won't enter the land. He will not get to live in it. And that's a sad truth of Scripture. There are some things that the forgiveness is there. God didn't condemn Moses to an eternity of separation. There's forgiveness But the consequences continue on in this world. And that's what Moses finds out. And all the people reading it would find out too. As he then urges them, starting in chapter 4, Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and the laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Because you saw with your own eyes, there's that phrase again, what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor, but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. And the subtext of this is you saw with your own eyes the Lord God destroyed from among you your parents. That's what he means by everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. Your parents' generation. They're dead in the desert and I'm about to join them, but you are going to go in and you're going to inherit what God has given you because you held fast to the Lord your God. You're still alive today. So see, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Here's the key. We'll end on this verse. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. Remember the original promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Through your offspring, all the nations... the earth will be blessed. The whole purpose of God calling the people of Abraham was to bless the nations. And entering into the covenant with them at Mount Sinai was to set them apart from the nations. Why? So the rest of the nations could burn and God could just hang out with His people? No. So that their relationship with God, as holy as it is, would serve as a priesthood to the nations. And what do priests do? They represent the God to the worshiper. So in Israel's case, their covenant relationship with God was going to be the means by which they represent God to the nations so that the nations would come and join themselves to Israel just as Caleb and his family had done when they came out of Egypt. So he says, Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them when the way the Lord your God is near us when we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. And then he's going to go on to remind them of that, what exactly he's talking about, which was the covenant they made in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, which we'll have to get to next week because we're out of time. You guys have a great week. There's seconds if you want them. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.